Section 41 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Altean rides with a very short stirrup, and thus trotting would be too exhausting both for man and horse. So, as a rule, he goes at a walk or a gallop. Instead of the trot, there is another, more comfortable movement, in which the horse's center of gravity moves steadily forward in a horizontal line, and shaking and jolting is avoided. The horse advances the two left feet, one after the other, and then the two right feet, keeping the time of four threshers. In this way, it can cover ten miles per hour. The most prized horses are the amblers which always move the two feet on one side simultaneously and are sometimes so swift that other horses can scarcely keep up with them at a gallop. Spurs are unknown to the Altaian, and in the steppe horseshoes are not needed. The nomad spends the greater part of his life in the saddle. When he is not lying inactive in the tent, he is invariably on horseback. At the markets, everybody is mounted. In the saddle, all bargains are struck. Meetings are held, kumis is drunk, and even sleep is taken. The seller, too, has his wares, felt, furs, carpets, sheep, goats, calves, before, behind, and beneath him on his horse. The riding horse must answer promptly to the bridle, and must not betray his master by neighing during a raid. Therefore, the young stallion, for mares are not ridden, is taken from the herd with a lasso and castrated. The nomads of the Asiatic background all belong to the Altaian branch of the Ural-Altaian race. The Altaian primitive type displays the following characteristics. Body compact, strong-boned, small to medium-sized, trunk long, hands and feet often exceptionally small, feet thin and short, and in consequence of the peculiar method of riding with short stirrup, bent outwards, whence the gait is very waddling, calves very little developed, head large and brachycephalic, face broad, cheekbones prominent, mouth large and broad, jaw mesognathic, teeth strong and snow-white, chin broad, nose broad and flat, forehead low and little arched, ears large, eyes considerably wide apart, deep sunken, and dark brown to piercing black, eye opening narrow and slit obliquely, with an almost perpendicular fold of skin over the inner corner, Mongol fold, and with elevated outer corner, skin wheat color, light buff, Mongols, to bronze color, Turks, hair coarse, stiff as a horse's mane, coal black, beard scanty and bristly, often entirely wanting, generally only a mustache, bodily strength considerable, sensitiveness to climactic influences and wounds slight, sight and hearing incredibly keen, memory extraordinary. Six to ten blood-related tents, Mongolian yurta, on the average families of five to six heads, form a camp, Turkish al, Mongolian kotan, kotun, Romanian katun, which wanders together. Even the best grazing ground would not admit of a greater number together. The leader of the camp, 
is the eldest member of that family which possesses most animals. Several camps make a clan, Turkish Tire, Mongolian Imak. Hence, there are the general interests of the clan, and also the individual interests of the camps, which latter frequently conflict. For the settlement of disputes, an authority is necessary, a personality who, through wealth, mental capacity, uprightness, bravery, and wide relationships, is able to protect the clan. As an election of a chief is unknown to nomads, and they could not agree if it were known, the chieftainship is usually gained by a violent usurpation and is seldom recognized generally. Thus, the judgment of the chieftain is mostly a decision to which the parties submit themselves more or less voluntarily. Several clans form a tribe, Yurik. Several tribes, a folk, Turkish, Il, Mongolian, Ulus. Conflicts within the tribes and the folks are settled by a union of the separate clan chieftains in an arbitration procedure in which each chieftain defends the claims of his clan, but very often the collective decision is obeyed by none of the parties. In times of unrest, great hordes have formed themselves out of the folks, and at the head of these stood a kagan or a khan. The hordes, like the folks and tribes, form a separate whole only in so far as they are opposed to other hordes, folks, and tribes. The horde protects its parts from the remaining hordes, just as does the folk and the tribe. Thus all three are, in a real sense, insurance societies for the protection of common interests. The organization based on genealogy is much dislocated by political occurrences, for in the steppe the peoples, like the drift sand, are in constant motion. One people displaces or breaks through another, and so we find the same tribal name among peoples widely separated from one another. Moreover, from the names of great war heroes arose tribal names for those often quite motley conglomerations of peoples who were united for a considerable time under the conqueror's lead and then remained together. For example, the Seljuks, Uzbeks, Chagatais, Osmans, and many others. This easy new formation, exchange, and loss of the tribal name has operated from the earliest times, and the numerous swarms of nomads who forced their way into Europe under the most various names are really only different offshoots of the same few nations. The organization of the nomads rests on a double principle, the greater unions caused by political circumstances, having no direct connection with the life and needs of the people in the desert, often cease soon after the death of their creator. On the other hand, the camps, the clans, and in part the tribes also, retain an organic life and take deep root in the life of the people. Not merely the consciousness of their blood relationship, but the knowledge of the degree of relationship is thoroughly alive, and every Kyrgyz boy knows his Jedi Atalar, that is, the names of his seven forefathers. What is outside this is regarded as the remoter relationship. Hence, a homogeneous political organization of large masses is unfrequent and transitory, and today, among the Turks, it is only the Kara Kyrgyz people of East Turkestan, who are rich in herds, that live under a central government, that of a hereditary Aga Menap, beneath whom the Menaps, also hereditary, of the separate tribes, with a council of the Greybeards, 
oxacals of the separate clans rule and govern the people rather despotically what among the turks is the exception was from the earliest times known to history the rule among the mongols who were despotically governed by their princes the khan wielded unlimited authority over all no one dared to settle in any place to which he had not been assigned the khan directed the princes they the thousand men the thousand men the hundred men and they the ten men whatever was ordered them was promptly carried out even certain death was faced without a murmur but towards foreigners they were just as barbarous as the turks the origin of despotism among the Altaians is to be traced to a subjugation by another nomad horde, which among the Turkish Kazakh Kyrgyz and the Mongol Kalmuks of the Volga developed into a nobility, white bones, the female sex white flesh, in contrast with the common people, black bones, black flesh. The transitoriness of the wider unions on the one hand and the indestructibility of the clans and camps on the other, explain why extensive separations, especially among the Turco-Tartars, were of constant occurrence. The desert rears to independence and freedom from restraint small, patriarchally directed family alliances, with greybeards, oxacals, from families of aristocratic strain at their head. These families boast of their direct descent from some sultan, beg, or famous batir, hero, recta, robber, or cattle thief, but the greybeards mostly exercise the mere shadow of dominion. The Turkomans say, we are a people without a head, and we won't have one either. Among us, each is padisha. As an appendage to this, Sahara is full of sheikhs. The wanderings of the nomads are incorrectly designated when they are called roaming wanderings, for not even the hunter roams. He has his definite hunting grounds and always returns to his accustomed places. Still more regular are the wanderings of the nomads, however far they extend. The longest are those of the Kyrgyz, who winter by the Aral Sea and have their summer pastures 10 degrees of latitude further north in the steppes of Troitsk and Omsk. The distance, allowing for the zigzag course, comes to more than 1,000 miles, so that each year the nomad must cover 2,000 miles with all his herds and other goods. During the winter, the nomad in the desert is, so to speak, a prisoner in his tent, practical, neat, and comfortable as this is. It is rotunda 15 feet high and often over 30 feet broad. Its framework consists of a wooden lattice in six to ten separable divisions, which can be widened out or pushed together for packing. Above this comes the roof frame of light rafters, which come together in a ring above. This is the opening for air, light, and smoke, and is only covered at night and during severe cold. Inside, a matting of steppe grass runs round the framework, and outside is a felt covering, bound round with ropes of camel's hair. Tent pegs and ropes protect the tent from being overturned by the violent northeast orcon, during which the hearth fire must be put out. As the felt absorbs and emits very little heat, the tent is warm in winter and cool in summer. Inside the tent, the sacks of victuals hang on the points of the wall lattice. On the rafters above are the weapons, harness, saddles, and, among the heathen tribes, the idols. Behind the hearth, the seat of honor for guests and old men 
is spread with the best felt and carpets. In front of the hearth is the place for drinking vessels, and sometimes for fuel, the latter consisting of camel and cattle dung, since firewood is found only in a few places in the steppes and deserts. The nomad life admits of only the most necessary and least breakable utensils. For preparing food for all in the tent, there is a large cast-iron cauldron, acquired in Chinese or Russian traffic, with tripod and tongs, a trunk-like kumis vat of four smoked horse hides thickened with fat, kumis bottles and water bottles of leather, wooden chests, tubs, and cans hollowed out of pieces of wood or gourds, wooden dishes, drinking bowls, and spoons. Among the slave-hunting Turkomans, short and long chains, manacles, fetters, and iron collars also hung in the tent to the right of the entrance. The accommodation provided by the tent and the economizing of space is astonishing. From long past times, everything has had its assigned place. There is room for forty men by day and twenty by night, notwithstanding the many objects hanging and lying about. The master of the household, with the men, occupies the place of honor. Left and right of the hearth are the sleeping places, felt, which is rolled up in the daytime. Left of the entrance, the wife and the women and children, to the right, the male slaves do their work. For anyone to leave his wanted place unnecessarily, or without the order of the master, would be an unheard-of proceeding. In three-quarters of an hour, a large tent can be put up and furnished, and it can be taken to pieces and packed just as quickly. Even with movables and stores, it is so light that two camels suffice to carry it. The Nogai Tartars carry their basket-like felt tents, which are only eight to ten feet in diameter, on two-wheeled carts drawn at a trot by small-sized oxen. In the 13th century, under Chinggis and his followers, the Mongols also made use of such cart tents, drawn by one camel, as storeholders, but only in the Volga district, and not in their own country in Mongolia. They also put their great tents, as much as 30 feet in diameter, on carts drawn by 24 oxen, 12 in a line. The nature of the ground admitted of this procedure, and consequently the tent had not to be taken to pieces at each stopping place as must be done in the steppes and deserts, but only where a considerable halt was made. In South Russia, such wagon tents date from the oldest times and were already in use among the Scythians. Among a continually wandering pastoral people, the interests of neighbors often collide, as we know from the Bible story of Abraham and Lot. Thus, a definite partition of the land comes about. A folk, or a section of a folk, a tribe, regards a certain stretch of land as its special property and tolerates no trespass from any neighbor whatsoever. The tribe, again, consists of clans and the latter of camps, which in their turn regard parts of the whole tribal district as their own. This produces a very confused medley of districts over which the individual camps wander. In spring and autumn, the nomad can find abundant fodder almost everywhere, in consequence of the greater moisture and luxuriant grass crop. The winter and summer abodes demand definite conditions for the prosperity of the herds. The winter settlement must not have too severe a climate. The summer grazing ground must be as exempt as possible from the terrific plague of insects. Since many more conditions must be satisfied for the winter than for the summer pastures, it is the winter quarters which determine the density of the nomad population. 
Thus, the wealth of a people accords with the abundance of their winter quarters, and all internal encounters and campaigns of former centuries are to be regarded as a constant struggle for the best winter settlements. In winter, whenever possible, the same places as have been used for long times past are occupied, in the deep-lying valley of a once-existing river, not overexposed to the wind, with good water, and grazing places where the snow settles as little as possible, and the last year's dung makes the ground warmer and at the same time provides fuel. Here, at the end of October, the tent, made warmer by another covering, is pitched, protecting the nomad from the raging winter baran and the numbing cold. The herds, however, remain in the open air without a sheltering roof and must scrape for themselves the withered shrubs, stalks, and roots from the snow. They get terribly thin. Indeed, sheep, camels, and oxen perish when the snow falls deep, and the horses, in scraping for fodder, trample down the plants and make them uneatable, or when ice forms and shuts out sustenance entirely. But in early spring, the situation improves, especially for the sheep, which, from mere skeletons, revive and get fat on the salt steps, where a cursory inspection reveals no vegetation on the glittering crust of salt. The salt pastures are incomparably more nourishing than the richest alpine meadows, and without salt there would be no sheep-rearing nomads in Central Asia. To freshen the spring pasturage, the steppe is burnt off as soon as the snow is melted, as the dry last year's steppe grass gets matted under the snow and would retard the sprouting of the new grass. The ground, manured by the ashes, then gets luxuriantly green after a few days. In the middle or at the end of April, during the lambing of the sheep and the foaling of the mares, preparations for striking the winter tent are made. At this time, the animals yield most milk, and a stock of hard cheese, kurut, is made. At the beginning of May, the steppe begins to dry up and the intolerable insects appear. Now the goods which are superfluous for the summer are secretly buried. The tent is struck and loaded with all necessary goods and chattels on the decorated camels. It is the day of greatest rejoicing for the nomad, who leaves his inhospitable winter quarters in festal attire. The winter quarters are regarded as the fixed property of the individual tent owners, but the summer pastures are the common property of the clan. Here, each member of the clan, rich or poor, has, in theory, the right to settle where he likes. But the wealthy and illustrious always know how to secure the best places. To effect this, each camp keeps the time of departure to the summer pastures and the direction to be taken as secret as possible. At the same time, it makes an arrangement with the nearest related camps in conformity with which they suddenly depart in order to reach their goal as quickly as possible. If the place chosen is already occupied, the next which is still free is taken. At the beginning of spring, when the grass is still scanty, the camps can remain only a very short time, often one day or even only half a day in one place. Later on, in their more distant wandering from well to well, they can stay for weeks in the same place. At midsummer, movement is more rapid, and in autumn, with an increasing abundance of water, it is again slower. In the sand desert, the nomad finds the wells covered by drift sand, and he must dig down to them afresh, if necessary, daily. The regulation of these wanderings is undertaken by the axicals, 
not always according to justice. The cattle can easily be taken off by a hostile neighbor, for the steppe is free and open. Therefore, the nomads of the steppes, unlike the nomads of the mountains, do not split themselves into single families. They constantly need a small war band to recover the stolen booty from the enemy. On the other hand, the instinct of self-preservation often drives a whole people to violate their neighbor's rights of property. When there is dearth of fodder, the cattle are ruined, and the enterprise and energy of the owner cannot avert calamity. The impoverished nomad infallibly goes to the wall as a solitary individual, and only seldom is he, as a former wanderer, Chorva, capable of becoming a despised settler, Chamru, for he feels it to be the greatest misfortune and humiliation when he must take to the plough somewhere by a watercourse on the edge of the desert, and so long as the loss of all his herds has not hopelessly crushed him, he does not resign himself to that terrible fate which Mohammed has prescribed with the words, wherever this implement has penetrated, it has always brought with it servitude and shame. In spring, when severe frost suddenly sets in after the first thaw, and the thin layer of snow is covered in a single night with a crust of ice an inch thick, the cattle cannot scrape food out of the snow, and the owner cannot possibly supply a substitute. When the frost continues, hundreds of thousands of beasts perish, and whole districts previously rich in herds become suddenly poor. So as soon as ice appears, the people affected leave their winter quarters and penetrate far into their neighbor's territory until they find food for their herds. If they are successful, a part at least of their cattle is saved, and when the weather changes they return home. But if all their cattle perish entirely, they must starve if they are unwilling to rob their wealthy neighbor of a part of his herds. Bloody feuds occur, too, in autumn, on the return from the summer pastures, when the horses have become fat and powerful, and the longer nights favor and cover long rides. The nomad now carries out the raids of robbery and revenge resolved upon and skillfully planned in the summer, and then he goes to his winter quarters. But how can these barbarous robbers live together without exterminating each other? They are bridled by an old and tyrannical king, invisible to themselves, the deb, custom, want. This prohibits robbery and murder, immorality and injustice towards associates in times of peace. But the strange neighbor is outlawed. To rob, enslave, or kill him is a heroic deed. The nomad's ideas of justice are remarkably similar to those of our ancestors. Every offense is regarded as an injury to the interests of a fellow man and is expiated by indemnification of the loser. Among the Kazakh Kyrgyz, anyone who has killed a man of the plebs, a black bone, whether willfully or accidentally makes no difference, must compensate the relations with a coon, i.e. 1,000 sheep or 100 horses or 50 camels. The slaughter of a white bone costs a sevenfold coon. Murder of their own wives, children, and slaves goes unpunished, since they themselves are the losers. If a Kyrgyz steals an animal, he must restore it together with two of the same value. If a wrongdoer is unable to pay the fine, his nearest relations, and failing them, the whole camp, must provide it. The principal food consists of milk products, not of the fresh milk itself, which is only taken by children and the sick. A special Turco-Tartar food is yogurt, prepared with leaven from curdled milk. The Mongols also eat butter, 
the more rancid, the more palatable, dripping with dirt and carried without wrapping in their hairy, greasy coat pockets. From mare's milk, which yields no cream, kumis, kirgis, chigan, mongolish, is fermented, an extremely nutritious drink which is good for consumption and from which by itself life can be sustained. However, it keeps only a few hours, after which it becomes too sour and effervescent, and so the whole supply must be drunk at once. In summer, with an abundance of mares, there is such a superfluity of kumis that hospitality is unlimited, and half Altai is always drunk. The Turkomans and Karakalpaks, who possess few horses and no studs, drink kumis seldom. The much-drunk Iran, from fermented unskimmed camel, cow, and sheep milk, quenches thirst for hours, just as does the kefir of the tartars from cow's milk. The Iran, after being condensed by boiling and dried hard as stone into little balls in the sun, is made into curt, kurat, which can be kept for months, and is the only means of making bitter salt water drinkable. According to Marco Polo, it formed the provision of the Mongol armies, and if the horseman could not quench his thirst in any other way, he opened one of his horse's veins and drank the blood. From Kumis, and also from millet, a strong spirit, Kyrgyz Boza, is distilled, which produces dead drunkenness followed by a pleasant nirvana sensation. A comparison of Rubikui's account with that of Radloff shows that the dairying among the Altaians has remained the same from the earliest times. A late acquisition from China, and only available for the wealthier, is the brick tea, which is also a currency and a substitute for money. Little meat is eaten, notwithstanding the abundance of the herds. It is only customary on festive occasions or as a consequence of a visit of special honor. In order not to lessen the stock of cattle, the people content themselves with the cattle that are sick beyond recovery, or dead and even decaying. The meat is eaten boiled, and the broth drunk afterwards. Only the Volga Kalmuks and the Karakirgis, who are very rich in flocks, live principally on sheep and horse meat. That the Huns and Tartars ate raw meat softened by being carried under the saddle is a mistake of the chroniclers. At the present time, the mounted nomads are accustomed to put thin strips of salted raw meat on their horses' sores before saddling them to bring about a speedy healing. But this meat, impregnated with the sweat of the horse and reeking intolerably, is absolutely uneatable. From the earliest times, on account of the enormous abundance of game, hunting has been eagerly practiced for the sake of food and skins, or as sport, either with trap and snare, or on horseback with falcon and eagle. From Persia came the long-haired greyhound in addition. Fishing cannot be pursued by long-wandering nomads, and they make no use even of the best-stocked rivers. But by the lakes and the rivers which do not dry up, fishing is an important source of food among short-wandering nomads. For grain, the seeds of wild-growing cereals are gathered. Here and there, millet is grown without difficulty, even on poor soil. A bag of millet meal suffices the horseman for days. A handful of it with a drink of water appeases him well enough. Thus, bread is a luxury for the nomad herdsman, and the necessary grain can only be procured in barter for the products of cattle rearing and house industry. But the Kirgis of Fergana, 
in their short but high wanderings on the pamir and alai high above the last agricultural settlements which only extend to forty six hundred feet carry on an extensive agriculture summer wheat millet barley by means of slaves and laborers at a height of eighty five hundred feet while they themselves climb with their herds to a height of fifteen thousand eight hundred feet and partly winter in the valleys which are free from snow in winter the nomads eat vegetables seldom as only carrots and onions grow in the steppes the half-settled agricultural half-nomads of today can be left out of consideration according to plano carpini the mongols had neither bread nor vegetables nor leguminous food nor anything else except meat of which they ate so little that other people could scarcely have lived on it however in summer they consumed an enormous quantity of milk and that failing in winter one or two bowls of thin millet boiled in water in the morning and nothing more except a little meat in the evening we see that from the earliest times the altaian nomad has lived by animal rearing and in a subsidiary degree by hunting and fishing and here and there by a very scanty agriculture as among some hordes especially the old magyars fishing and hunting are made much of many believe that they were originally a hunting and fishing folk and took to cattle rearing later this is an impossibility the magyars just as were the others were pure nomads even during winter otherwise their herds would have perished hunting and fishing they pursued only as stop gaps when milk failed a fishing and hunting people cannot so easily become mounted nomads and least of all organized in such a terribly warlike way as were the magyars the innate veracity of the turco-tartars is a consequence of the climate the bedouin in the latitude of twenty to thirty two degrees at a mean temperature of 86 degrees Fahrenheit, can easily be more abstinent and moderate with a single meal a day, meat, dates, truffles, than the Altaian in the freezing cold, between the latitudes of 38 and 58 degrees, with his three copious meals. The variable climate and its consequences, hunger in winter, superfluity in summer, have so hardened the Altaian that he can, without difficulty, hold out for days without water, and for weeks, in a known case, 42 days, in a snowstorm without any food. But he can also consume a six-months-old weather at one sitting, and is ready to repeat the dose straight off. Originally, the Altaian clothed himself in skins, leather, and felt, and not till later in vegetable stuffs acquired by barter, tribute, or plunder. Today, the outer coat of the Kazakh Kyrgyz is still made of the shining skin of a foal, with the tail left on for ornament. The Tsaiden Mongols wear next to their bare skin a felt gown, with the addition of a skin in winter only, and leather breeches. All Central Asiatics wear the high spherical sheepskin cap, also used as a pillow. The Chapan, similar to a dressing gown, and consisting of fur or felt in winter, leather boots or felt stockings bound round with rags. Among many tribes, the hair of the men is worn long or shaved off entirely. Herodotus tells of a snub-nosed, shaven-headed people in the lower Ural. And the Magyars, Kumans, and others were shorn bare, but for two pigtails. End of section 41. Recording by Colleen McMahon.